0: This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. Through the season of Lent, as always, we're employing the Sunday morning services to kind of help us focus, um, to reflect on our faith. Uh, We're using the theme of the Sunday morning services to kind of point us toward the heart of the Christian faith, which is always what we do in the season of Lent. We reflect back as baptized people on what Christianity means, uh, what our relationship with God looks like, and we reaffirm our baptism at, at Easter. So to help us with this, this sermon series, we've asked you guys, and you've responded well, to think of the words or the concepts or the realities that to you are the most central to the Christian faith. And not because um, it was a magic number, but it was the amount of weeks we had between now and Easter, we asked you to come up with six words. And so we've gathered those words, dozens and dozens of you sent in your words, and we assimilated those words, and the word that was most frequently um, given in these lists of six was the word God. So we're going to look at the word God, and we're going to focus today on what is the central core notion given to us by the Judeo-Christian tradition that we are a part of? What is it that the Jewish Christian faith says about the concept of God that is at least an innovation, and for most of us we believe uh, a a revelation on the religious scene of the world? So what is revealed about God through our faith tradition? Now there's a lot to say in that, but let me suffice to say, before we jump into some scripture, as we think about the concept of God, This very Jewish journey for us, our faith is steeped in a Jewish tradition, this very Jewish journey for those of us who follow Christ as Lord reaches its crescendo through the Hebrew text, the Hebrew story, it reaches its crescendo in the Messiah, the one that we call Jesus. And it especially reaches its crescendo in the giving of the Holy Spirit, which per Jesus, is simply the embeddedness of Jesus in the hearts of all people. On the day of Pentecost, the Spirit is poured out, and Peter said, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and the last day says, God, I'll pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. And so, we begin this Lenten season of reflection by stepping back and looking at our story that begins Genesis 1-1 with, in the beginning God, and it reaches this crescendo, Colossians 1-27 Christ in you, God in you, your hope of glory. And then Greg Boyd last week employed the text from Colossians 2. In him, in Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And I love this last phrase. And you find your completeness in him. So we are in God and God is in us. That's the Judeo-Christian story. Jesus said, not only is it true that God is with us, Emmanuel But Jesus, before he was crucified, said the reality is, if you let me go as you have me, you will actually find me as you need me, and I have been with you, but I shall be in you. So the whole story is about the absolute nearness of God, a story of profound oneness, a story that says all of life is sacred, a story that says God is imminent and near us, and yet God is transcendent and above and beyond and more than we could ever imagine. So our story is the story of the nearness of an incredible God. I'm gonna walk through some scripture today, and I think a great place to begin as we really refocus and look at what is our idea of God? What have we been taught about God? I think a great place to start is in Paul's message from his second missionary journey when he's headed south from Macedonia in northern Greece after establishing the churches at Berea, Philippi, Thessalonica, He's heading down toward Corinth, but on his way to Corinth, he stops at a philosophical center, a cultural center of Greece called Athens. And there at Athens, he finds his way to a group of people called the Areopagus, who are the erudite. They are the leading philosophers of that particular region. And he engages them. Acts 17 tells that story, so look at the text with me. More than anything else, this group of people, the people of Athens and the foreigners living there... They love philosophy, and they love to hear and to talk about anything new. So Paul one day stood up in front of that council of philosophers, and he said, people of Athens, I see that you're very religious. That's not a negative connotation for Paul. This is not Paul and, you know, the billboard that says, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. This is actually a good sense of religiosity. Uh, He's commending them that they are religiously zealous that they're seeking after the things of the divine God. He said, I, I recognize that you're very religious. As I was going through your city and looking at the things you worship, I found an altar with the words to an unknown God. In other words, you're so scrupulous in your polytheism that you even made an altar to an unknown God because you didn't want to short anybody. And also, you have probably a fear of the gods. And if you do short one of the gods, they might be angry at you and you might get on the wrong side. So, to cover all your bases, you have this altar to an unknown God. He gives them further credit by saying, You worship this God, but you don't really know him. Now, what's he saying? He's not simply saying something about their religious expression now he's saying something about this God that they're expressing religious fervor towards. And he says, you worship this God, but you don't really know him. So I want to tell you about him. Now, we've talked about this before, but folks take time to think about this. Paul is telling them that this God whom they worship called the unknown God actually exists. And he's even crediting them with worshiping this God. He's giving them credit for sincere religious expression outside of the bounds of knowledge. Did you hear him? He said, you worship him, but you don't know him. And then he infers that he does know something about this unknown God and would like to tell them more about him. This God, now he doesn't automatically, as many Christians would suspect, go straight to Jesus. He says, this God, reflecting back historically, made the world and everything in it. This God whom you really don't know, but you worship, made the world and everything in it, and he actually is Lord of heaven and earth. And I want to tell you about him. He doesn't live in temples. Your city has many of them. But he doesn't live in temples built by human hands. And he doesn't need help from anyone. He gives life. He gives breath. And he gives everything else to all people. And that includes you. And that includes me. From one person, God made all the nations who live on earth. So, in God's intentional plan, there was an original human, and that original human did not create disparate groups of people, some who were in and some who were out, some who were loved and some who weren't loved. But from one person, God made all the nations who live on the earth Unless you mistake the story of the Judeo-Christian text as a story simply about the Jewish people or simply about Christian people. He said, I want you to understand, speaking to another religious group, that God made all the nations, even the one you're a part of, who live on earth. And he actually decided when and where every nation would be. And God has done all of this. Every nation. Yours and ours. Jews, Greeks, God has done this, your story and our story, so that we will do exactly what you're doing with that altar to an unknown God. No wonder he's giving them credit because they're doing exactly what he's about to explain all of us are supposed to do. What we've been doing over in our Jewish land and what you've been doing in your Greek land, God has done all of this so that we, you and us, will look for him. And reach out and not just look for God and reach for God, but find God. And he isn't, whether you're in the Americas or the Levant on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean, he isn't far from any of us, plural, you and me. And he gives all of us the power to live He gives us the power to move, and he gives us the power to be who we are. And who is that? His children. Do you understand the solidarity that he's finding there with this group of people? A lot of people think sharing your faith includes coming into the lives of other people and absolutely denigrating their journey and acting like God's had nothing to do on their side of the earth, right? Anybody ever seen that type of religious Expression. But Paul speaks to a group of people who are polytheists, who believe in many gods, and they believe crazy things about crazy gods. As a matter of fact, the Greco Roman pantheon was a veritable soap opera in the sky. Their gods were whimsical, unpredictable, immoral, and unloving on many accounts. And Paul said, I would like to direct your attention from those gods that actually are no gods that dwell in temples made with hands because they're made out of silver and gold, and I'd like to direct your attention to this unknown God whom you worship, and the reason you worship him is because he created you to worship him, and this longing to cover all of your bases is your expression that he created you to express that you might look for him. What is that altar to an unknown God? That's you looking for God that you might reach for him. You built an altar that you might ultimately find him. And Paul said, I'm here today to simply connect you deeper to a God who has already found you, and to some degree, you've already found him. You are in relation, but not fully, because you worship him, but you don't know him. And he gives us the power to live and to move and to be who we are. We are his children, Just as, and and what a great thing Paul does here. Instead of going to his text, he gives credit to their text. And he said, it's not just Isaiah who said this. Your poets said this. They were intuiting the right things. Since we are God's children... Paul doesn't appeal to the Athenian polytheists by polytheists saying, "I'm glad I got here to tell you, you don't know anything, but if you 'll listen to me, you can become God 's children." That's not what he said. He said, "Since we are God's children, you see that? Since we are God 's children, we must not think. Now that's important. You don't think right to become God's child. But because you are God's child, it's important that you think right. Do you see that? Isn't that what that says? Since we are God's children, we need to think right about God. And that's what this series, Vocabulary Faith, is about. It's to take words and ask ourselves, are we thinking right about these religious words? Since we are God's children, you included, we must not think that he's like an idol made out of gold or silver or stone He isn't like anything that humans have thought up and made. And that is the process of looking for. In our process of looking for and reaching for God, you know what we end up doing often? We end up, as Pascal said, creating God in our image, right? God often ends up looking just like us. He isn't like anything that humans have thought up and made. In the past, I mean when you look back anthropologically, historically at the world prior to the Abrahamic traditions, we were animist, we were spiritist, we were at best polytheist, but there was no sense of a moral loving entity called God. There was a sense of another world, the sacred other, And and the strong sense was that whatever is out there is against us. That's why every typhoon, every tsunami, every hailstorm was what insurance companies still today call an act of God. Any bad thing that happened seemed to tell us that on the other side of visibility, in the invisible world, somebody out there was mad at us. And so we look historically at religion, and religion has always been this effort to connect with that other side that is angry with us. That's why we had priests. That's why we had altars. That's why we had temples. We weren't good enough, so we hired professional people to do our brokering for us. We couldn't come directly to God, so we built big altars. We stood on this side, God stood on that side, and we even developed the idea of sacrifice, that we would take what was dearest to us, and we would throw it on the altar in the temple through the professional, and maybe somehow whoever was on that other side would back off and not be so angry, that's called propitiation, that's called atoning, that's called making things right, you see the story, that's the story of human history, and I want to say this about that story, in the past, Paul said, God forgave all this, that's really good to know. You wonder about, you know, I grew up wondering about all the people who lived before. Remember that? All the people who lived before. Well, good news, God forgave all that. God forgave all that because people did not know what they were doing. Now, that reminds me of something else someone said one time from a cross. You remember one of the sayings of Jesus? Father, forgive them. Why? That's an incredibly understanding God. And and sure God understood this because the story that Paul is telling is a story of evolution. The story that Paul is telling is a story of graduation and and, and revelation that's unfolding. It's the story of God in time-release form releasing as human consciousness has the capacity to see it. It's not God looking back and saying, two people had everything perfect, they ate a fruit, and it's been going downhill ever since. That's not the story Paul's saying. Paul's saying God created one man, and all the nations have come out, and those nations are in their places. They have their sociology. They fit into the world in their way, and the reason God did that is that they might look for, reach for, and ultimately find. And what I see you doing with an altar to an unknown God is exactly that, and I'm glad I got here because since you are children of God, I want to help you see this God a little more clearly. You see that story? I'm not making this story up. This is Paul. A lot of you think Paul's a pretty tough guy. This is pretty amazingly gracious, isn't it? And so we look at all of that. We look at our children's history. We look at the scraped knees and the emergency rooms and the frailties and the foibles and the Mistakes and all the trouble they get in, and we look at that history, and for the most part, we call it good and we forgive it. Anybody ever get on to your kid, and you get on, and they think it's the most serious thing in all the world, and it is serious. They need corrected, and you keep your face stern because you want them to know it's serious because they need to get the message, and you leave them with the trembling lip and you walk around the corner, and you fall across your bed, and you laugh your head off. You know why? It's not because what you were doing isn't serious. It's because you put it in perspective, and it's pretty much what you expect at this stage in their life. And it's important because they're your child that they need to quit thinking like this, but you're not shocked. You're not in awe that they thought like this. And God forgave that. God looked at human history and God forgave it because people did not know what they're doing. But now, this is the crescendo that we find in Jesus. And Paul believed that the coming of God in Jesus put a deeper onus on the human family. It, it called them up to a higher level of responsibility. And he said, but now he says that everyone everywhere must repent. C-E-V softens that word because that word has fallen on a hard times for a lot of people, but it's actually a great word. Repentance, just simply, metanoia. it means to change your mind. But now God says that everyone everywhere needs to change their mind. They need to turn to him. And they need to learn some things that are incumbent upon them as children of God. They need to learn that God is not many, but one. They need to learn that God is not capricious and whimsical and unpredictable, but is consistent and trustworthy. They need to learn that God is not unloving and quarrelsome and judgmental and condemning. They need to learn that God is love. And Paul believed that Jesus Christ, as Greg said last week, The crucified Lord as the face of God was exactly the antidote, Jesus Christ was exactly the expression of God that people needed to clear up their ideas of who God was. Now, rooted in the story, in the Judeo-Christian story, are several innovations. We actually, because it's our faith, we don't call them innovations because that sounds like something humans would do out of our ingenuity. We call them revelations, the revealing of God. And and I want to admit that the Jewish family did give us the deep innovation, revelation of monotheism. But I also want to admit that the the innovation slash revelation of monotheism was not distinct to us. In the space that Abraham was being called out, we do know as we read the text carefully That Abraham was not first and principally and clearly a monotheist. From Abraham to Moses, there was a developing idea shifting from monotheism or from polytheism through what is known as henotheism, which is a regional gods with one supreme, to a monolatrist perspective that was there are many gods, but you should have no other gods before him. There was a developing monotheism, and I just want to say the Jewish people did not come clearly to monotheism until they came home from exile some 500 years before Jesus. And interestingly, as I've said before, while they were in exile, they had cross-pollinating effect with a religion in Persia called Zoroastrianism that itself was rooted in monotheism. And we know all the way back when Moses still thought there were other gods, but our God had to be supreme, Prior to Moses, there was an Egyptian Pharaoh who taught that there was one God named Athanah. Now, there was only one Egyptian Pharaoh, and he didn't last long because they liked all their gods, but people had been positing this idea of one God for a while. So while I love the fact that the Jewish people give us this idea of one God, we were not the only ones positing that idea, and we may not even be the first people positing that idea. So I just want to say that that's not our chief innovation. What is then the chief innovation of the Jewish Christian family? Long before the revelation of monotheism came into focus, the story of the Jewish people provided us, I think, the greatest revelation of all. And that is that God is love that God is moral, that God can be trusted, that God is good. In a world filled with a pantheon of gods who were scary, unpredictable, in a world that was canopied by a celestial soap opera that people were continually afraid of as they cast wayward eyes toward the sky. In a world where the gods were whimsical and their way was filled with infidelity, rooted in our story from the very get-go is the story of a God who actually can be trusted, a God who is righteous and a God who is just, a God who is fair. Now, I know in retrospect we say, well, that doesn't sound like much because we've lived with that a long time, but I want you to know when God tapped a man named Abram on the shoulder and said, I want you to follow me and I wanna show you a different way of being in the world. Abraham set out looking for a city whose builder and maker was God and the Bible says that God told him, I am trustworthy and good and I'm gonna give you a child. I'm gonna burst miraculously through the, in, the infertility of you and your wife, and I'm going to give you a child, and from that child is going to come a great nation from your loins. And for 25 years, Abraham and Sarah walked in the heartache of infertility and barrenness. And then one day, this God, who said, you can trust me, gave them a baby, and they named him Isaac. And they held that baby, and they walked with that baby, and they grew that baby Weaning him and rearing him until finally, perhaps as an adolescent boy, out on the soil that they tilled, Abraham leaning up against a sycamore tree, looking at that boy grinding behind an ox, God whispers to him, and God says, I want him back. And Abraham's heart skips a beat as he whispers, What do you mean, Lord? And God said, take him to Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice to me. Interestingly, the Bible doesn't say that Abraham stands up. And I'm asking all of you in the religious context that we know, if tomorrow in the paper Some person claimed to be holy by saying, God told them to drown their child. What do we do with people like that? Think about this in a contemporary context. Somebody says that God told them to kill their children. Happens all the time. We call it an admixture of insanity and evil and don't know how to parse the two out as we stand in shock and awe the gravity of human brokenness. But that's our story. God says, kill him in my hand. And the most amazing part of that story and yet enlightening part of that story is that Abraham did not stand up in the face of God and say, who are you? What kind of a divine monster would ask a parent to take the life of their child to prove their love for God. The Bible does not render Abraham flippant, nor does it render him dissident, but the Bible simply says, acquiescing in pain, he yielded, and I'll tell you why he yielded so simply, because this is exactly the kind of God he knew, And when you look at the Semitic cultures, especially those that rested in the Mesopotamian Crescent down in the top of the Persian Gulf where Abraham came from, their religion was vested in child sacrifice, human sacrifice. So what you have Abraham doing here, Steve, is saying, oh, I get it, just like all the other gods. You are no different than the gods from where we came. And dutifully, because that's what you do with gods, because gods are bigger than you and gods are bad, and if you don't do what they say, it's going to be even worse than what they told you to do. And dutifully, Abraham, submitting to one more god like all the rest, climbs the hill to Moriah, and as his own tears mingle and drip down into the tears of his son, and the mid-morning sun glints off the knife, raised high, just as he comes to the point of crashing down in the middle of that boy's sternum. A ram stirs in the bush. He created the nations that they might look for him, that they might grasp for him, that they might reach for him. And that is a halting journey. It is a multi-staged epiphany that unfolds over time. And in the Abrahamic story, an innovation happens. And actually, without the aid of cross-pollination, all around the world in that early second millennium, we realize that people begin to shift slowly now from human sacrifice to animal sacrifice. And Abraham now realizes that our God is a little better Maybe a whole lot better because it's only rams and sheep and goats and turtle doves that need to die, not our babies. And the picture of God begins to unfold. A thousand years later, David, after his grievous sin with Bathsheba, crawls into a cave at Machpelah and says, cast me not away from your presence. Renew your Holy Spirit in me. Take not your presence from me. And at the end of that prayer, with great innovation, no wonder he was called a man after God's own heart. He heretically says in the middle of a Levitical mosaic system of animal sacrifice with great heresy, and yet often the greatest heresy is the expression of God's ultimate heart. David says it's not the blood of bulls and goats you want. Have you not read Leviticus, David? Have you not read Numbers? Do you not know Deuteronomy? It's not the blood of bulls and goats you want, it's a heart. It's a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And God said, Surely he's a man after my own heart. Surely. He's a man in pursuit of my heart. That's why I made the nations that over time they would be reaching for, grinding for, grasping for, and little by little they would find more and more of my heart. And periodically there are those enlightened mystics among us that precociously get ahead of the curve. And in the middle of millions of gallons of animal blood being spilt, they look up and say, I get you. It's not the blood of bulls and goats you want. And every priest from Dan to Beersheba cries foul. And the biblical text even rises against him. And God looks at the angels and winks and says, he's on to something here. And the unfolding revelation of God is that there is a God here who wants something other than what we've thought. There is a God here who actually loves and simply wants to be trusted in that love. And this unfolding story is not just a story that unfolds as the text grows older or as the text waxes further along. Actually, as we begin reflecting back on the story, we find that in every place Christ was embedded in that rock from which water came. We find a crucified Lord was embedded in that rock that Moses struck, and the striking of the rock delivered water, and the striking of the rock the second time bleeds water and blood from his side. We look back, and embedded in that text is the story that We had failed to see before, but it was actually there. Now with eyes to see it, we see it. And even in our first story, in the beginning, God, the story was all about trust. The story was all, John, about whether or not we could trust God loved us and rest in that. But we never quite could. And all these years later, I still have trouble with that at times. But the story says that God made a man and a woman And he looked at them and based upon no resume of theirs, except that, as Paul said, we are all the children of God. God said, based upon the fact that you are my child, here's my deal with you the whole world is yours. Every tree in the garden is yours. Based upon the fact that they were his children, based upon nothing they had done, God said, I can be trusted. I love you. It's all yours. And then God cast a wary glance on one particular tree, and God said, except that one. And Adam and Eve, already feeling the allure of the forbidden, no doubt, looked at that one and said, why? Why? And the goodness of God, understanding that self-interest is a healthy part of spirituality, looked at them and did not say, because I told you so. But when they said why, God said, that's a good question. I'll explain it to you. If you eat that tree, it'll kill you. At that moment, Adam and Eve believed that the tree would kill them. You know why they believed it would kill them? They believed it would kill them because they believed God. They believed what God said because they believed something deeper. They believed God's heart for them. They looked at God and they said, you are lover and if you are lover, we are the loved. And if we are the loved and you are the lover, then whatever you say is in our best interest. And every day they walked by that tree and there was crossbars and a skull because they trusted God. And one day, we don't know how long it had been, but one day a serpent crawled into the garden. That was before it was de-legged. It crawled into the garden. Interesting thing about that Edenic story, my Lord, to try to make that story a story of history or science is to miss the grand beauty of that story. People ask me, they say, do you believe that it literally happened absolutely 10 billion times so far? Every one of us have lived this story. That's how profoundly true this story is. I have encountered that voice that saddles up beside you, and the voice came to Eve, and the." Serpent did not look at everything that had been given. He looked at the one tree, and he looked at Eve, and he said, could I ask you something? Interestingly, the story doesn't even say that Eve was shocked that an animal was talking. I mean, this is Doolittle stuff. She just, sure, I mean, there was just talking animals. It's so funny when we make fun of other religions and say, it's so crazy, their religion, you know, all that stuff. Like, we don't have any of that stuff in our story. The the serpent looks like a salamander said, Can I ask you something about that tree? Eve said, sure. The serpent said, what did God tell you about that? She said, God told me not to eat of it. And the serpent does something like this. <laughs> figures. And Eve says, Come again. The serpent said, Oh, figures. She says, What do you mean? And the serpent says, You can see the serpent. He's, he's whispering now. The serpent says, Well, he tells everybody that. He tells everybody that kind of thing. He says, What do you mean? He says, He acts like he's this big lover. And he loves you. And he even says things like, don't eat because you'll die. Not only will you not die, you will live like you've never lived before when you eat that fruit. Do you see what he's doing there? This isn't about the fruit, is it? What's this about? What is he assaulting right now? He's assaulting the character of God, isn't he? He's calling into question whether or not God's trustworthy. He's calling into question whether or not God is lover. He's calling into question whether or not she's the beloved. And he says, I want to unequivocally tell you he's not the lover, you're not the loved, and there's nothing wrong with that tree. And you need to eat it because all he's doing is selfishly holding out on you. From the very beginning, our spiritual woes are described as us losing confidence in the character of God. And we always make a big deal out of the fact that then she saw that it was good for food, pleasant to the eyes, and would make her wise. We always point to that, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. But the most important part of that story is the first word. It's not, she saw it was good for food, she saw it was pleasing to the eyes, she saw it would make her wise. The first word, then she saw it was good. Then, when did she see the fruit differently? Then, when is then? Then is the moment she saw God differently. Because when you see God differently, you see yourself differently, and when you see yourself differently, the whole world looks different. And if God's not the lover, and I'm not the beloved, then it's up to me to take care of myself. And from the beginning, the description of the fall is not a sexual problem. From the beginning, the question of the fall is not a gluttony problem. From the beginning, the fall is rooted in our loss of faith that we are the beloved community, and he is the lover. And the story of the Judeo-Christian text is a journey to recapture the character of God. The journey of the Christian faith is a journey to recapture our confidence that God is trustworthy, that God is ultimately love. That's why John the Beloved gets to the end of our book and says in the scariest book of all with seven headed monsters, Jesus walked over to me, I was scared out of my mind, dropped down dead. And Jesus said, here's the message of the whole book. Don't be afraid. For perfect love, love when it's taken its journey, will cast out all fear. Greg Boyd said it, and I'll stop here today and pick this up with the second word, which obviously is Jesus. And we'll pick up here with Jesus in 1 John And the faith of Abraham, the faith of Abraham really is the story of Jesus. We'll get to all of that next week, but let me just summarize by saying. Greg Boyd told us last week that the most important thing in your life is the concept you have of God. And that's absolutely true. Because the way you see God will immediately have an impact on the way you see yourself. And the way you see yourself, Terry, will immediately have an impact on the way you see everybody around you. Everything stems from that vision of God. Peter, one day, like me, struggling with the issue of forgiveness How much do you forgive? A friend of mine and I were sitting at San Antonio Taco last night rehearsing the story of the Jordanian pilot burned alive. I haven't seen it. I don't want to see it. But my friend, in an effort to sensitize himself to the realities and the horrors of what's happening there, he watched it. And as he described the story to me, and some of you have seen it, in a moment of anger, I, who am not in favor of capital punishment, theoretically said to him, I would have no problem. And I explained to him things that I would have no problem doing to the fellow who lit the match, burned another human being alive. And yet in my heart, As I described, not with machismo, but with just disgust and pain, that I would have no problem, Jeff. Just, I thought maybe I would. Maybe I should. And as I said awful things about that inhumane, evil person, I thought about the text for Peter said, Lord, how much should we actually forgive? Should we forgive seven times, which was absolute magnanimity on the part of Peter because rabbinical systems said you should forgive two, three, four times, and Peter stretched that out and said, how about seven? And in some cases, Jesus would say to a question like that, no, it's not seven, but it's 70 times seven. But in this case, Jesus did the magnificent thing within his pedagogy that he often did Jesus heard the question, how much do we forgive people? What do we do with religious jihadists like Saul who hold people's garments while women and men are being stoned to death? We we live in a faith of a God who actually pursues those jihadists and turns men like Saul into Paul and makes them examples of grace. And Brad, I don't always have that feeling. And so I asked the Lord, How much do I forgive? How much in my humanity do I extend grace? And Jesus said, Can I tell you a story? There was a man that owed a humongous debt to a king. And the king called him in, and the king called the debt accountable. And the debt was 50 million pieces of silver. And the man didn't have 10 pieces of silver. He was bankrupt, bereft of anything. And he fell down on his knees. All he had was his humanity. He fell down and he said, I've got children. I've got a wife. I've got a life. And I have no excuses, but I'm asking for mercy. And the king was so moved, Mary, that the king looked at him and said, forgiven. And he erased a debt of 50 million pieces of silver. And the man stood up in shock, in awe. And if I'm reading the story properly, he didn't go from the place rejoicing he backed out of the place thinking to himself, I got to get out of here before he changes his mind. You know why I feel like that's the way he went? Because if he would have received the gift of grace, if he would have received the blessing, if he would have trusted the blessing, his life would have shaped differently as he left that place. But the Bible didn't say that he went leaping, embracing the gift You remember, God told Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and if you can receive it, you'll be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Because when you really can appropriate love, you're a lover. When you really can appropriate gifts, you're a giver. When you really can appropriate blessing, you're a blesser. And if you're not a blesser, and if you're not a giver, and if you're not a lover, the problem is you've never appropriated that you are the blessed one. So mistrusting... The character of the king that he looked and he said to himself, get out of here before he redecides," and he backed out of that room. The reason I know that's the case is because the first guy he met on the street was a man who owed him 100 silver coins. And Braddy grabbed him by the collar and said, I want it now. The ridiculousness is not rooted in how selfish the man can be because he's been forgiven 50 million and now he's exacting over 100. No, 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 the tragedy is he did not believe in the character of the king and he knows the king is messing with him and he knows that it's gonna be called due very soon and the king's gonna rescind it and he's gotta make hay and get as much as he can and he grabs a guy and says, I gotta have it and the man falls down on the floor and says, I got a family, and I got kids, and I'm begging you for mercy. And the man who felt unforgiven, but really was, said, I got no mercy for you. You know why he had no mercy? Because Augustine said God can't give to clenched fist, and he had received no mercy. And if you receive no mercy, you can give no mercy. And if you receive no love, you can give no love. So much so that when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, we do. And often poorly. And the poor love given to the neighbor is the love that we've never given to ourselves. And God said, if you want to get the whole religious deal, if you want to get the whole religious deal, here it is. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And John later says, we love him because he first loved us. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. And in the process of loving people so poorly, we ask ourselves, why do we love them so poorly? It is because we have never learned to love ourselves well. And why have we not learned to love ourselves well? Because we have never appropriated that the model for self-love is the divine love of God. As Henry Nouwen said, we must quit disagreeing with the sacred voice who calls us beloved. And if we can ever understand that we are the beloved, that the 50 million silver coins are truly forgiven, then we will meet that grace out everywhere we go. I want to read a couple of letters before I close today, and this is in no way to engender sympathy for me because I feel more grace-filled and relieved than I have ever felt in my 46 years of life. But with that said, I want to share with you the way a person's vision of God impacts their treatment of others. Stan... This is from someone a long way off. You are greatly deceived. I imagine you may have received some hate mail by this point, but this is not meant in that spirit. However, you always know it's coming. However, but I must tell you that this is not an issue for debate among those who know and honor the Lord, which you clearly don't. What you are doing will affect many people. You are in danger of being guilty of causing the little ones who believe in Jesus to stumble. And I can track so far, I I, I understand. It is not merely a euphemism to say that you would be better off to tie a millstone to your neck and jump into the sea. It is simply true that you would fare much better when you stand before the seat of Christ if you will go ahead and commit suicide than if you continue on your present course. This kind of thing doesn't get far from ISIS. And it all comes down to a view of God. You see that? I beseech you on behalf of the Lord Jesus, and I believe that he probably is, that you come to your senses and repent. I pray that you will be snatched like a brand from the fire and that you might be saved in spite of your current apostasy. I fear for you. I reject as patently false your claim to have struggled with this issue. You may have struggled to decide how to frame your decision but you never struggled to discern what is right and wrong. He knows me somehow. You know this is wrong. I do. It is your desire He says, I know it is your desire to maintain and expand your personal kingdom that has led to this decision. Finally, somebody figured me out. You have no idea how much danger you're in. I cannot pray for mercy for you except in the context of your unqualified repentance, which I hope will be soon forthcoming. I will hope to see that or failing that, I will hope to see the Lord take your life quickly which would be evidence of his mercy because if you continue on this course and enjoy your current status and are not judged, that would be a sure and ominous sign of your eternal condemnation. In love, on behalf of the Lord Jesus. Okay, calm down. It's not that funny. Now, what? I'm not trying. I'm not trying to straw man I'm simply saying that ISIS is not halfway around the world. Our view of God impacts deeply how we see. I actually would bet that that human being in principle is better than his theology and is not an evil man. It would be easy for us to caricature and paint this as something that is not. My sympathy is, I not only have known that man, I have been that man. Haven't I, Ron? Another, I am totally floored as to your stance on equality. There will never be true equality, and there never has been, ever. You have so much blood on your hands. I pray the wrath of God visits you. How dare you, in a position of pastoral responsibility of Christian beliefs, pollute and destroy God's word with your twisted view? How can you justify this biblically, not just one or two verses, but the Bible as a whole? God is not simply love. As I'm typing this, I quake beneath his sovereignty. His truth and plan won't be altered by your weakness. May your head be saturated with the blood of those who are leading straight to hell. And I go online and I look at the Facebook and for 10 minutes, I look at a person that I want to be a monster, but it's a mother who obviously loves her child, a woman who loves her dog, a good person. And it would be easier for me just to dismiss and say, evil people, not so. I read the post. And she's a daughter and a mother and I'm sure a friend. But she has a view of God that allows for this. And then Tony Campolo writes and says, thank you for doing what you feel God is leading you to do. Faithfulness often has a price to be paid and I'm grateful you've been willing to pay it. There may not be much applause for what you're doing as you try to be the kind of inclusive church that you've been called to be, but the only applause that really matters comes from a pair of nail-pierced hands. One day, I believe, you will hear the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Your church is a trailblazer, and the time will come when a new generation of Christians will stand up and say, well done, thou good and faithful servants. From an 80-year-old woman named Phyllis Tickle, The theological position you as a body of God's church have taken is in every way the one most consonant with scripture and the thrust of the gospel into our place in history. And while there may be some question about that just now for some of your fellow parishioners and treasured friends, I don't think there will be any question five or six decades from now about the holiness and correctness of what you've done. In the doing of all this, however, you have paid a price and are enduring a most painful period in your communal life. While none of us in the larger Christian community can suffer that pain for you or even ameliorate it, really, We can and do send our prayers and our respect, our thanks for your courage and our sure knowledge that what you have done is what should have been done. And neither side tell the story of what is God's reality for sure. Only God knows. But both sides and both voices, I must find no peace or no distress in either because they are not the voice of God. They are the voice of people just like us who treat others and respond to others and circumstances and situations out of ultimately the way we see God. And wherever you fall, know this. Our brother Greg was right last week. The way you see God affects everything everything, and we will pick up there with the picture of God that came most clearly to us in the face of Jesus Christ next week, and I hope you understand my reading of those things. It's to draw no sympathy. I thank God for the great peace in my heart, but, oh, brothers and sisters, be careful that you look for him and that you reach for him And that you hear the voice that says, you have worshiped me, but have you known me? And allow him little by little along the way to reveal himself to you. Can you say amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time together and these good people who call themselves followers of you. Oh, Lord, may we truly follow you and may your life shape us as opposed to the reverse. Forgive us for all the ways that we have created you in our image. Forgive us for all the ways that we have shaped you to be what we want. And, O Lord, we pray, little by little along the way, that you touch our eyes again, that the one we have worshipped, that even we, though we call him Jesus, have not known fully. Sweet Jesus, may you, through your Holy Spirit, be revealed to us more and more, even today. May we see your face, God, and may we respond accordingly. Thank you that you are love, and may we be the same. We pray this in Christ's name. And God's people said, amen. God bless you. Go and be good to one another.